I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The advent of targeted therapies has contributed to notable progress in the fight against cancer, but the ability of cancers to develop resistance to these precision medicines continues to leave patients in need of new approaches. Concarla Therapeutics is developing therapies that target a critical driver of cell proliferation that's reactivated once a cancer grows resistant to certain targeted therapies. We spoke to Stacy Blaine, co-founder and Chief Scientific Officer of Concarlo, about the development of drug resistance in cancer, the company's initial focus on breast cancer, and her own journey from academia to biopharma. Stacy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. We're going to talk about drug-resistant cancer, breast cancer, and how Concarlo is developing therapies for drug-resistant breast cancer and other cancers as well. We've seen great advances in precision medicine. How big a problem does drug resistance play in cancer today? Well, uh, thanks. That's a great question. The, The issue is that despite advances in treatment, and we have made great strides over the last, you know, several decades, uh, resistance to our new standard of care therapies is a problem that has emerged. And so in the breast cancer space, in the United States, we have, you know, 40,000 people that will die. And worldwide, it's close to 700,000 people will die of breast cancer every year. Um, And so that still represents a very large unmet need. And so we've had a lot of new entrees into the therapeutic space, particularly precision oncology drugs. But we now recognize that tumors are highly evolving uh, entities and that the tumors can evolve away from many of the precision oncology therapies that we've developed. And so we have to think about developing new therapies in that space, uh, therapies that can deal specifically with that resistance that happens in the face of other precision oncology drugs. Drug resistance is certainly not particular to treating breast cancer. Why start with breast cancer? Yeah, so um, we got into this because we were studying uh, the three main drivers of all uh, cell growth and proliferation. These three proteins called CDK2, CDK4, and CDK6. And they sit at the bottom of what I call the oncogenic funnel, which is the signals that tell a cell to divide or not divide, and those signals get perturbed in cancer. And those signals run from the cell surface, they run through the cytoplasm, the middle of the cell, and they get to the brains or the nucleus of the cell. And it's in that brains that these three proteins sit. The issue is that most of our precision oncology drugs work 
at the cell surface, so at the top of the oncogenic funnel or in the middle of the oncogenic funnel, targeting signaling molecules like the RASs or the RAFs or the MECs. We have not been as successful, even though we knew this was a goal, to target at, in the nucleus or the brains, uh, those three proteins, CDK246. So, you know, there's been a lot of focus over the last 40 years like, to target at the bottom of the oncogenic funnel. And in fact, um, in 2017, the CDK46 inhibitors came to market only in the breast cancer space. And these were the first CDK um, inhibitor drugs that were able to make it all the way through approval. And they are great drugs. They definitely extend the uh, remission window for patients taking these drugs. The problem we know now is that essentially all patients with time will become resistant to those drugs. This is Ibrance, Virginia, and Kisqually. And they become resistant while they're still blocking CDK4-6 they become resistant because they're not able to inhibit CDK2. And we now recognize you really have to hit all three of those proteins, CDK2, CDK4, CDK6, to really put the full clamp and shut down the bottom of the oncogenic funnel. So we started in breast cancer because that's where the only place that the CDK4-6 inhibitors were approved and we very clearly knew how that resistance developed, the activation of CDK2. So it made sense for us to go in with a triple CDK246 inhibitor, particularly into that space. We will not stop at breast cancer because that triad, CDK246, does control both the growth as well as the resistance of numerous other tumor types. But breast cancer was the, the natural entree into this field for us. As an academic researcher, you were focused on cell cycle regulation. Broadly speaking, should cancer be thought of as a breakdown in cell cycle regulation? Absolutely. At its essence, that's what cancer is. It's a cell that has lost its ability to recognize the stop signals and doesn't need the go signals. And so if you think about it this way, every cell in our body, every second is making this decision. Should it divide or should it not divide? And some cells divide all the time, right? So these are the our skin cells or intestinal cells. They're very short-lived cells, so they're just constantly having to birth new cells. And some cells only divide when they receive the appropriate signals, cells such as our liver cells. If they sense that the organ isn't the right size or there's too much damage, they can birth new cells. And some cells almost never divide, you know, our cardiac lineages and our neuronal lineages. And in fact, when they do divide, that may be one of, they are not able to complete that division cycle. And that be, may be one of the causes of neuronal degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, for example. So every cell is regulating the decision to divide or not divide. But a cancer cell has lost the need for that regulation. It just divides all the time. And that division process, dividing all the time, enables the cell to acquire lots of other really bad mutations that can imbibe it with a fully cancerous phenotype, right? And so at the, the bottom line, uh, the cell can just divide uncontrollably, allowing it to acquire all that other bad stuff that makes it a real cancer cell. So yeah, it's a loss of uh, cell cycle regulation. And that's how we got into this. I was My academic lab was studying how the cell receives and interprets those signals. And then that naturally led to, well, if we understood that, then we could actually harness and leverage that ability to create better therapies to block uncontrollable growth. You're targeting P27 and the therapies you're developing, what is P27 and, and what's its role in normal biology? 
So if the three main drivers, CDK246, are they're sort of the executioners of the, of the signal, right? They receive the signal and they carry out, they make that decision, should we divide or not divide? How are they regulated? How are they normally regulated in the cell? And they're regulated by this protein called P27. So if you walk one step upstream from CDK246, you have this protein P27, which receives those signals from the cell surface and the cytoplasm. They go to P27 and they say, activate CDK246, or alternatively, don't activate CDK246. So P27 is the natural master regulator of these three kinases. And we chose to drug P27 because honestly, people have been trying to drug the CDK specifically for 40 years. And it's really difficult to do because the CDKs are part of a very large family that has over 20 family members and they all look pretty similar. And it's been very difficult to create medicines, drugs that are specific enough to reach just CDK246 without hitting CDK7 or CDK12 and all this other these other CDKs, which leads to what we call off-target toxicity. So we said, what if we drug P27, which is much more unique in the cancer genome, and we can create an inhibitor that's very specific for P27 and get P27 to do its job, which is to block CDK246, wouldn't that create a therapy that is going to produce less off-target effects, fewer off-target effects, and actually uh, get follow what nature does um, to inhibit these three high-value kinases. And that's, that's our approach. So P27 is present in all your cells, and it's normally receiving those signals turning these three kinases on or off. And that's what we are leveraging and harnessing the power of P27. Is there some dysfunction of P27 implicated in, in the drug-resistant cancers, or is this just the way to get at those other targets? It's really the way to get at these targets. Interestingly, uh, P27 has a couple functions. It's, it has an activating function and an inhibiting function, so it really is an on-off switch. Sometimes it turns CDK246 on, sometimes it turns CDK246 off, and we think about it as a door. Sometimes doors are open, sometimes doors are shut. And that's what P27 is doing. It's opening and shutting the, the activation door on, off. And so because it has these tool, dual functions, we don't see it very frequently uh, lost or mutated in cancer. And so it, we're really leveraging P27, which is present in almost all tumor cells, to get it to do its job to inhibit the kinases. Because the kinases, CDK246, are so required for this proliferation of even the cancer cell, it's unlikely that we're gonna see them, uh, they're not directly mutated as much themselves. It's really the upstream or down upstream players that are turning them on too much. Um, and so we're really harvesting P harnessing P27 to you know, do its job. Well, what is your lead program and, and how does it work? So our lead program is actually, again, we're based on nature. Um, you know, P27 is the natural inhibitor of CDK246. There is a natural inhibitor of P27. Um, and there's a natural activator of P27. And, and the activator is called BERK, breast tumor-related kinase. And uh, there's a, a small variant of BERK, which is called ALT, and that's the natural inhibitor. So the natural inhibitor, think about it as a blanket or a key. And so um, when, uh, if you think about P27 as a door and it's opening or shutting the door on CDKs, turning them on or off, 
uh, doors are open or shut based on if there's a key present, right? And so we basically took this protein alt and treated it like a blanket, uh, blocked the keyhole. So now the P27 door is always locked. It's always shut. The kinases are always off. So that's really the basis of our lead um, uh, asset. It's based on this natural inhibitor. We, it's a peptide. We bioengineered it to make it smaller, more drug-like, uh, and deliver it via liposome. And that, that serves to, a liposome is sort of a, a lipid suitcase, and, and we all should be familiar with liposomes because the COVID vaccines were a piece of genetic material packaged in a lipid suitcase. And so the lipid suitcase helps protect that uh, peptide, the therapeutic payload, uh, so it doesn't get degraded as it's circulating around the patient. It increases the time that it can stay in the patient's blood, and it helps facilitate the delivery specifically to the tumor cells. So that um, product, we have finished most of our manufacturing, and we are ready to move that product through what's called IND enabling studies, the, the experiments we need to do to prove to the FDA that our therapy is uh, safe and ready for human testing. Is this expected to be a monotherapy or would you use it in combination with other therapies? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have seen that our best responses are in combination with palbociclib, so in combination with Ibrantz or Virginia or Kisquali. And so uh, we think they have slightly different mechanisms hitting sort of two parts of that CDK246 hub. And so we are imagining um, testing uh, IPY20, which is our lead, in combination with um, the FDA-approved CDK4-6 inhibitors. And that is um, a, a strategic decision as well, because we think that um, you know patients are used to taking those inhibitors in the HR-positive, uh, hormone-receptor-positive, HER2-negative space, metastatic space. And so adding in a, an additional therapy uh, is something that may work very well for you know the patients in this population. And... At the same time, are you expecting to use this with a companion diagnostic? We are looking at companion diagnostics. Um, it, interestingly, there are very few or no companion diagnostics in the Ibrantz Virginia Kisquali space. Really, the only diagnostic it, for the women and men that are that are using these therapies are are they. Uh, estrogen or progesterone receptor positive. Um, and we know that, you know, real world evidence says between 20 to 40% of those patients just get no benefit at all, right? They basically are off drug within three to six months. Um, and so those would be essentially our initial population would be patients that had been on one or two prior rounds of the CDK4-6 inhibitors and had had progression on those inhibitors and then would be candidates for the addition of our drug IPY. Uh, but eventually, as you start thinking about moving the usage of IPY earlier in the, the treatment uh, life cycle, uh, yes, bringing in some companion diagnostics to identify those patients earlier that would benefit from the combination therapy as opposed to the monotherapy, pavlocyclic therapy, would be really a great way to, um, to help our patients. You mentioned you're not in the clinic yet, but What's known about it from the preclinical work you've done to date? So we have tested um, our lead IPY20 in a variety of different um, cancer, breast cancer mouse models, um, both spontaneous models as well as genetically engineered models, as well as what are called 
um, cell line derived xenografts where we take human cells and inject them into animals. And, you know, we've really challenged ourselves across lots of different models to show efficacy. We've done preliminary toxicity experiments in rodents. And so, you know, we've done most of our preclinical work and are really ready to move to our IND enabling studies. And that would constitute, you know, larger um, animal toxicity studies, calculating the dose frequency for usage in humans. And so we're ready to, to move forward with those experiments now. We think, you know, we are raising money to uh, finish, to push IPY to the clinic. And so if we were, could raise the, the money that we need, we could be in the clinic, we think, within 18 months. As you noted, there are many other cancers where drug resistance is an issue. Would you expect to use the same drug to target these or would they require a, a different therapeutic approach? For definitely for some of the other uh, cancers, we think the same formulation, the same, you know, drug um, a product could be used. Uh, but we also recognize that there are probably some other tumor types that would not be amenable to the peptide liposomal approach. And so we are developing other assets, secondary assets, that have slightly different delivery properties. Um, we also have some small molecule uh, drugs that are developed against the P27 target. And, and those would be for tumors that are harder to use the, the liposomal formulation with. And that might be pancreatic cancer, for example. We have very good evidence to show that pancreatic cancer is uh, susceptible to the P27 targeting mechanism. But traditionally, pancreatic cancer is uh, has a lot of desmoplasia, has a lot of fibrosis. It's a, it sort of creates a microenvironment around itself that makes it very difficult for large molecules to access the pancreatic cancer cells. And so that is a tumor type that we think would be very amenable to our smaller molecules, our smaller, smaller P27 inhibitors. And so we're thinking, you know, broadly, uh, about where can we use both our lead as well as our secondary assets to bring uh, alternate therapies to a, a wide variety of patients. I, I referenced your academic career, but uh, I'm curious, why did you decide to leave academia to start a biotech? So I have been working on the P27 target for over 25 years. Uh, I started studying this at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center when I was a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, they had just discovered this protein um, when I joined that laboratory, the laboratory of Schwann Nassigay, and I was really the first person in the door to start working on it. And I continued working on it. I got my own, I started my own lab and, you know, worked on it for two decades uh, in my own lab. But I always knew from the beginning that, you know, P27 was really the way to inhibit these three high value targets, CDK246. And so if you go back and read things that I wrote, you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, you can see I already have a, a therapeutic in mind. And it took us until the teens to really figure out how to leverage P27. And then I started Concarlo in 2017. And I actually stayed in academia for several years um, after starting the company. I started the company really in part because uh, the NIH suggested I do that. I had sent in a grant and they had said, you know, it sounds like you want to make a drug and you're an academic and you can't make a drug in academia. You should start a company and get an SBIR grant. And, you know, I'm a good scientist. So I listened to advice and I did that. And then eventually realized that you know, if you work on the same target for 25 years and you, you know, my one little claim to fame is this is, I know this target better than anyone else. I want to really 
dedicate all my effort to pushing our drugs to the clinic and developing as robust a program as we can possibly have in um, uh, at Con Carlo. So that was my decision to leave. I also think that professionally, uh, you know, there's a whole other world, additional world about making drugs beyond just the mechanism or beyond just, you know, understanding how to design the drug. And it's been uh, fantastic to really delve into that other side, to surround myself with experts both on my team and off the team and, and meet different KOLs in that space. And, you know, as a scientist, you want to keep learning and challenging yourself. And so it's good to, you know, always feel like your learning curve is almost vertical. And that's where I am now at Concarlo. And it's just very exciting to be working with all of these different types of professionals. I still have all my academic colleagues. That's not going anywhere. But, uh, you know, to, to see the results of your academic work move forward in the potentially, you know, as a drug, that's really what it should all be about for all of us in, in academia. Well, as you found yourself wrestling with these translational science issues, what's been your experience? Has anything surprised you along the way? Um, well, you know, I always was doing a lot of translational work, I'd say, for the last 15 years. You know, I was working closely with lots of clinicians using human patient material, running a couple uh, small retrospective clinical trials. Uh, and I really enjoyed that, you know, re recognizing that what we do in the lab could be translated very quickly into the, the clinical realm. And so that was always the way that I'd been thinking. Um, and so I guess what really has surprised me pleasantly is that when you live in academia, I think you think you can easily get wrapped up that that's the whole world. Um, that you, you know, associate only with ac academics and you just live in even academic medicine. But then when you sort of like step through the door into the biotech space, you realize there's amazing science going on on the other side of the street that you didn't really, at least I didn't know that much about. And so that has been such a pleasant surprise is to meet people that have the same passion that I think we have in academia, but they've put their efforts into drug development and, you know, to recognize their skills and how they can complement my skills and how together we can build a great team to really tackle these issues broadly across all the different uh, domains that are needed to move things forward. So I'd say that's the, the biggest surprise along the way is just how much amazing science is being done um, that I didn't know about for, <laughs> for 15 years, so to speak. So uh, really happy to be sort of on both sides of the street. There's certainly no shortage of academic founders of, of biotech, but it still has been largely a male-dominated world. I'm curious, what's your experience as a woman doing this for a lead indication, while not restricted to women, is often viewed as a, a women's health issue? So that, unfortunately, is, you know, not been as positive as I wish it would be, right? I mean, we all know the stats, or, or we should be aware of them, that uh, women-led biotech companies only received 2% of all venture funding last year. So that is a real problem, despite lots of studies that have shown that women, you know, run companies have higher ROIs and, you know, all of those facts. It doesn't seem to change, though. So 
you know, if I look at that st stat, I'm already sort of behind the eight ball, coupled with the fact that I'm not a serial entrepreneur. And a lot of, you know, the venture money these days is going to, you know, serial entrepreneurs or sort of in-house spun out ventures from, you know, big VC funds. So the actual real capital available to academic founders is going to be less. And then coupled with an academic woman founder, it's even, even less. So that is discouraging. Um, but, you know, I think we have to continue for foraging along. And I think in general, women's health issues uh, also receive less attention, less research dollars and less funding. Uh, you know, we're in oncology. And so, yes, I think everyone recognizes that breast cancer is a big space. But, you know, women's health, women's diseases in general uh, just don't receive as much attention. And those are diseases that are specific to women or conditions that are specific to women, I should say, such as menopause, such as reproductive issues, or also diseases that primarily affect women. For example, 85% of Alzheimer's patients are women. So there clearly must be some gender-based um, issues there. And when we don't fund enough, you know, if we don't have adequate funding for women's health issues, women suffer and, you know, we're 50% of the population. So I think there's still a lot of work to do um, because of both, you know, unconscious and conscious bias about women leaders, as well as women's health issues. We've long heard from academic researchers about the competition for grant funding. Uh, I'm curious now that you find yourself in the world of fighting for venture capital funding during a biotech downturn. What's that experience like? How does it compare? <laughs> I actually think it's harder. Um, and, you know, when I came of age in the era of grant writing, when, you know, the NIH was sort of at an all-time low, you know, a healthy NIH should be funding 25 to 30% of all grants, because realistically, 25 to 30% of all projects are really well conceived and well thought out. And then, you know, no one is going to actually know whether the hypothesis was right or not. Uh, you know, I was working, getting grants from the NCI when the funding level was 5%. Um, and so, you know, was successful at doing that, but that is really hard. Um, the issue, however, is in there's a lot of very constructive feedback in the world of grant funding. You know, you get reviews, you get um, uh, commentary that you can then take to heart. So I always said when I was writing grants in academia, you know, everything that everyone said was valuable, right? It, mean, it meant like I either didn't explain something well, or it was proposing an idea or a hypothesis or a way of thinking that I hadn't considered. And I should use every line in that grant review to make my thinking and my work better. Sometimes in the world of venture investment, however, is you don't get a lot of feedback, which is unfortunate because uh, then you don't really know what to improve. You don't really know what they were thinking. And I think that hurts the entire enterprise across the space in general, right? Like if we had more feedback and between um, companies and venture, then we could sort of talk things out and figure out what are the best strategies to go forward across the space. And so 
you know, I think it's very difficult to get funding in both. And, you know, it, I think it takes time to sort of crack the code to both get grant funding and probably to crack the code to get VC funding. And, and we're still working on the latter. Um, so, you know, I think they're both hard, but at this point, I, because I'm living it, I think VC investment is, is harder right now. And how much has the company raised to date and how far will existing funding take you? Well, we've been open, you know, we started the company six years ago. And in the last six years, we have raised close to $10 million, um, which is a lot of money, but we've also done a lot of work in the last 10 years. And so we are now trying to raise our Series A funding to our first institutional uh, money. So all the, the $10 million that we've raised to date has been from grant funding. It's been from state support, impact funding, um, as well as family office support. So we haven't really raised any venture money to date. And that's what we're really trying to do right now. Because the next phase of work that we have to undertake is very expensive, you know, running those IND enabling studies, running our actual phase 1A clinical trial, you know, that's $15 million. So we need to raise, we're raising about $36 million in our Series A, and that has to come from, you know, venture uh, sources. Uh, so, you know, that's what we're doing right now. We, we have a runway and we'll continue for, you know, the next six months to a year, but we really would like to, we have to walk a little bit until we raise that Series A funding and we'd really love to run to the clinic because, frankly, the patients are waiting and we need to, you know, bring innovative therapies to the space. Stacy Blaine, co-founder and chief scientific officer of Concarlo Therapeutics. Stacy, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.